VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? The younger you are, the less likely you are to have an email address that you check daily. And so I think the email is already dying in that way. It's just not clear what's going to be replacing it in a work setting. Welcome to Danny in the Valley. We have a great show this week. Cal Henderson is here. Cal is the CTO and one of the founders of Slack, the business messaging platform that has taken the world by storm, or at least the business world. It gained fame, of course, as the fastest company to ever reach unicorn status, which is any private tech company worth at least a billion dollars. For Slack, that happened just eight months after they released their first product onto the market. And it's gained a few more billion since then. Uh, Cal's one of those guys that makes you feel like you haven't really done much with your life, uh, despite a luxurious beard. He is only 36. And this is his third company. Anyhow, he has a fascinating story to tell. I hope you like it. Which was Game Never Ending. A catchy title. Pathetic name. Uh, So this uh, company was started by Stuart Butterfield, who's now the CEO of Slack in Canada. And it was a web-based, I guess the first web-based massively multiplayer game. Um, Like World of Warcraft. Well, not a lot. (laughs) So (laughs) it it predates World of Warcraft and kind of 3D MMOs. It was um, web-based, so you played it in the browser... And it was not really graphical. It was kind of a the web evolution of Muds and Moods. So kind of that online kind of space. Is that like shoots and ladders or something? Um, not exactly. More like, you know, the command line. If you see people who are hackers in films, yeah. you know, and they the yeah. text window open. So it looks like that, but you're talking to other people on it. And kind okay. of early internet, kind of right. half game, half kind of social play space. Right. So it was kind of the evolution of those onto the web using a bunch of at the time, exciting web technologies. I saw this game, and I was super excited by it, about what they were doing, and uh, wanted to join the company. My because way. you're a gamer, um, fair to say. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like a super obsessed gamer, but I play video games. And I kind of tricked my way into being hired. How old were you at the time? 20? This was 2003. It was post kind of Worldcom and Enron, post dot-com collapse. They were a small company in Canada with no track record, making online games, which weren't a thing. So there was no money. So you're like, this is where I should work. This is perfect. This is definitely <laughs> the future. And an idea to try and like generate some income to keep the company going was to repurpose some of the technology that had been built for the game and build something else that they could charge for. And that's uh, where Flickr came from, the photo sharing website. Flickr still exists? Flickr Sorry, does I, still no, exist. That might be offensive. <laughs> uh, no, I think I had a Flickr account. It's owned by Yahoo, so will shortly be owned by Verizon. Right. Um, the intention was we'll spend three or four months building this thing, and then it'll make some money on the side, and we can go back to building the game. 
Um, and you were still in the I UK. Was, I was still in London at that point. So you were just what doing this in your bedroom uh, after work? Yeah, basically. I think right. there were uh, four or five people who worked on the initial version of Flickr, and we're like in New York and Vancouver and Seattle and us in London. Right. And so we launched it at the Emerging Technology Conference in San Diego at the beginning of 2004. And the very first version of Flickr, in fact, wasn't really a website. You couldn't view a photo on a web page. It was a real-time chat room in which you could share photos. And it was right. in Flash in the browser. And so if we were online at the same time, we could be chatting and I could drag in a photo and you would see it. Which sounds kind of dumb. Turns out it was kind of dumb. Um, and it very quickly <laughs> evolved into the more classic photo sharing website that exists today. Right. That doesn't seem particularly interesting now, but at the time there was no website where you could go and upload your photos and show them to somebody else on the web. It just didn't exist. So this was, wow. um, cell phones had just gotten cameras. The point and shoot kind of digital cameras had been around for a couple of years, but most people didn't own a digital camera yet. It was uh, still APS, you know, f film cameras. And so with the explosion of digital cameras and digital photos, there was nothing to do with your photos. There was Ophoto and Shutterfly where you could upload your photos and get them printed. But that was all you did with digital photos was you got them printed like you would have done. With you couldn't share them. There was an account. Yeah, you couldn't share right. them with anybody. And so right. Flickr was the first uh, kind of product in that space that let you put them on the internet and show them to somebody else. What was meant to be a small side project was a runaway success. And so we shut the game down. That was game never ending. Ended. Game never ending ended, unfortunately. Um, and then Flickr took off. When did you make the move from the UK to, to California? So when we launched Flickr in San Diego... That was the first time I'd met anybody else on the team. So we all went out to San Diego for the launch at, uh, at this conference. And I met the team. They turned out to be really nice in person. I'd only spoken to them on the internet before. And then a couple had, of weeks later... You'd spoken on the phone, presumably. Uh, yeah, I think we had yeah. spoken on the phone. But mostly, yes. mostly just on email yeah. at the time. Or probably instant messenger. Right. And a couple of weeks after that, I went out to Vancouver for a couple of weeks to work on some, some of the features that we were adding. Which um, is where Stuart was. Which is where Stuart's from. Right. And I just never went home. I was like, this place is nice, and I like these people, so I'll just stay in Vancouver. And were you getting paid? Yes, although we didn't really have any money at the time. So it was sporadically paid. So where were you living? Were you staying on, like, Stuart's couch, or did you actually have your own abode? Uh, no, it was you could afford to rent in Vancouver at that time. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so Flickr starts. It's a runaway success. Game never-ending ends. And then you sell Flickr. Uh, yeah, so it was the summer of 2005, and we were trying to decide between raising venture capital to grow Flickr or to take an acquisition, and we were, chose to be acquired by Yahoo in the summer of 2005. And with that, the team, there were nine of us at the time, and uh, so it was still very small, and we moved down to San Francisco. So how was that? Were you like Yahtzee, I've just won the lottery? Not really. It was a different time on the internet. This was... Really, Flickr was the first kind of consumer internet acquisition after the dot-com collapse. So there'd been quite a few years of kind of no acquisitions in that space. I think Blogger shortly before was kind of the first one that kicked it back off, but it wasn't the same kind of time. So we didn't know um, how much of a success it would be. The kind of Web 2.0 was very nascent at that point. And, you know, this is kind of pre-Facebook, even pre-MySpace. So that kind of second explosion hadn't happened yet. But you'd made a bunch of money, right? Eh, not that much. $35 million for, I don't know how many people were working there, but it must have been, as a founder, you must have done all right, no? 
Ah, oh, I wasn't one of the founders of the company. Ah, okay, right. But you had stock options and whatnot, like standard. Then you integrate into Yahoo, and that's, um, was that a happy marriage? Not so much. Unfortunately, shortly after we joined the company, Yahoo reorged and we moved from one department to another under a group that wasn't particularly interested in Flickr. And so for the kind of first year, we weren't really able to hire anybody or grow at all. At a time when the, the site was growing massively, it was the biggest social site on the internet. It was growing really? hugely every month. What, just in terms of traffic or? In terms of traffic and users. This is kind of like pre-Facebook um, explosion. So this is biggest thing on the internet and... Biggest social thing on the internet, right. but compared to search and Yahoo Mail, it's a tiny drop in the bucket. Um, and so it just didn't get a lot of focus. And so we're kind of starved for resources. In the four years that I spent at Yahoo, we only grew the team from eight to 30 people. So it was pretty small at the time I left Yahoo. Wow. And here in three or four years, you've gone from four people to 800. Yeah, four to eight hundred. Yeah, I think it's the fastest growing enterprise software company or business software company. That sounds right. <laughs> so you leave Yahoo. We left Yahoo with uh, kind of the dream of redoing the game or something like it. So we we were all still really interested in the game that we tried to make and failed, and kind of everything had been against us the first time around. You know, it was difficult to get funding. There were a lot less people on the internet like web-based games were not a thing but at the time when we left yahoo it was uh, the start of the rise of zynga there were a lot more people on the internet like zynga's like farmville and whatnot yep exactly that's like farmville one was out at that point and zynga were making all of the money and internet games were kind of you know a hot commodity and we really still wanted to execute on the original vision of like a an infinite play space as an online game and so we uh left Yahoo and started uh, the company Tiny Spec, which eventually made the game Glitch. And how'd that go? Uh, not very well. So, <laughs> well, well, we had a lot of excuses about why we failed the first time around. Glitch ultimately failed because we're not very good at making video games. Um, I think... So you finally kind of came around to that realization. Yeah, our passion for them is not equaled by our skills at making them, unfortunately. Um, and... We spent four years working on Glitch, and by the end of it, we had something that we're pretty proud of, and a bunch of people really liked and played every day, but nowhere near enough people to justify the investment that we'd made in building the game and the company. And you had venture capital backing at that point. That's right. Because you were this proven team, you had created Flickr, and like, okay, we're going to give you more money to try this thing again. Exactly. And I think our investors weren't necessarily super sold on the idea of exactly what we were doing. Um, but but the, they liked the, you guys. The team, yeah. Right. So when did you decide, all right, we're not very good at this? I think it was uh, about four years in. This isn't growing in the way that we need to. Um, it's something that we've been talking about for the kind of prior year. And we came to the realization that we were going to need to sh shut the game down. And so we shut it down in November 2013. Uh, we had 40, 50 employees at that time, and we had to lay nearly all of them off because we had sound designers, level designers, people right. drawing clothing and animating the clothing and objects in the world and the kind of thing that only makes sense for a game company to have. At that point, we scaled down to eight people and we still had a little bit of money left. Our investors didn't really want us to give them a bit of their money back. They wanted to see what we would do next. And so we tried to figure out what we could do next, you know, like starting from scratch, what's something interesting that we could work on. And while we were building the game, um, we were split mostly between 
the game studio in Vancouver and engineering was in San Francisco. And so we'd been using IRC, Internet Relay Chat, to do all of kind of our communication and production communication. And over the time that we'd been using IRC, we'd been building a bunch of stuff on top of it. So like logging and search so that you could find things later and a mobile interface so that you could uh, post messages and read messages from your phone. And any time somebody was working on a game asset and uploaded it, that would post into a channel so that you could see stuff being designed. Or so some- you built all of these kind of little programs to help you guys to work better effectively. Yeah, exactly. To develop the game. Yeah, so everything about the development and the running of the game. So if somebody bought, purchased something in the game, that would show up in a channel as well. And is, if- that the, is that common for if you're setting up a company and you're trying to do X, you create all of these other systems to help you achieve that? I don't know, but it's definitely common for us. It was just right. like the obvious way to work is that we wanted to you know, build all of this tooling to make it easier to, to do the work that we were doing. So while we talked about a lot of different things that we could do after we shut the game down, we came to the realization that whatever we did next, we would want a similar system to communicate while we did it. And so we figured if we would find that useful, then maybe other people would too. And so turned that system into a product and that became Slack. So it feels like you were kind of rummaging around in this giant haystack for this game or whichever idea it was but you had the kind of the needle kind of in your pocket the whole time i i guess so yeah um (laughs) i think at the beginning of working on the game we wouldn't like the idea of slack definitely hadn't crystallized like what what that kind of tool set would look like and so it took the development of that game to figure out quite how we would work together and so you decide to do slack and then do you create a kind of beta version of the product and then release it onto the world and see what happens? More or less. Mm, Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we built the first version. um, It took about six weeks before we had a version that we could use internally. And then we made the switch over to it for the development of the product itself. That one kind of big integrated tool with all the stuff you developed. The very first version was very alpha. So it was only runs in the browser there was no mobile component and there was channels and dms and that was it there was no kind of integration no uh, no other services that posted into it or posted out of it or anything like that so it's like the very bare bones version that we could switch to and move development onto and then i think it was about another month after that before we got our first kind of alpha testers onto the system the very first companies that we convinced to try slack was uh, rdo rest in peace rdo uh, it's like a Spotify. Some people would say a better version of Spotify that was here in the States. Would you say a better version of Spotify? Well, I was already a Spotify customer, but uh, most of my colleagues in. were... Well, I had all those playlists, you know. I know, that's the thing. They yeah, lock can, you in and then... can never leave. Yeah, yeah. you can't. Um, but uh, many people who work at Slack were, were big audio fans. We somehow managed to convince uh, the design team at audio to give it a go. And they did, and they provided us a lot of really useful feedback. Because we were an eight-person company, we built a lot of product assumptions around being a very small company. So there's no need to sort any lists or have any kind of find-as-you-type UI because you know all eight people you work with, and there aren't nine people called Matt in the company. (laughs) Right, Um, right. So we got a lot of very useful product feedback early on by having a company that was more than 100 people using it. And then it quickly took off, you you kind of created a more beefed up version of it and then it just kind of took off and you are the fastest company to unicorn status in the history of ever apparently i think that's right last i read you guys are worth roughly four billion i think that's right 
you are a founder now. Yes, I was one of the founders of so Kind you, Spec. So you own, can you say how much you own? Uh, no. It's a, probably a decent chunk, though, let's say. It's, it's fine. <laughs> You're a unicorn. Is it? Does that change the dynamic within the company? Is there a different type of pressure in terms of maintaining that growth and keeping that on a trajectory? I mean, how does it change the dynamic of the company internally? I think the downside to any kind of valuation is that you have to then grow into that in terms of revenue. So that's the downside. But you take that investment with the belief that you will be able to grow to that level of revenue. Right. There's quite a bit of upside to it too. It definitely makes recruitment a lot easier. You know, when we're trying to convince somebody to come and work at this new company, uh, we've been around for four years, we just failed and laid everybody off, but come work on this new speculative product. (laughs) It will be great. That's a much harder story than... This is a company whose product is used by thousands of other companies, millions of people every day. Investors believe we're worth billions of dollars can work here. That's right. a much easier story to sell. Yeah. Is it still easy to get people, though? Because uh, you know you read all these stories about Facebook and Google paying engineers 200, 300, 400 grand, and it's, all, it's such a sure bet. And you are still you know, a startup. You're not public, etc. Is that war for talent? Is that a, a thing? It's definitely we've moved into a kind of middle phase where we're not like a super risky, fresh startup anymore. So, you know, the possible downside is not probably that we lay everybody off next week. But also we're not a stable public company whose value is going to, you know, change very little over the next couple of years. You know, when you join Google and get Google stock, you don't think it's going to 10x while you're there. But you also don't think it's going to lose its value completely. No. So it's a very different kind of proposition. And as the company has grown, those are the kind of companies that we're competing with on offers. You know, either those kind of stable public companies or the very large private companies. Are you surprised you're here? There was a kind of a whole kind of hackery coder scene in London when you were living there. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. My kind of peer group in London were the early bloggers, people who had, you know, personal websites in around 99, 2000. You have which, a website, correct? Yeah, I had a, I still have a blog in theory. I posted to it once this year. So in far. theory. Well, I mean... If, <laughs> I saw you, know, you put, there was a post on there about su- complaining about you couldn't find a certain type of sushi towel. Oh, I think... The, <laughs> so that design, I think, is a speculative design. I follow this design blog that posts, like, cool ideas that then never get made into products, and it's not like I really wanted those towels. I was because I was just got back from Japan on holiday, yeah, and I was like, I, what is a sushi towel? I mean, it's got to exist somewhere. What is it? I was, does it just wrap around the sushi? It's, no, it's a full-size towel for humans. Oh, it but just looks like sushi rolls because of the coloring. Okay. Does it make more sense now? Yes, it does. Like, why would you need to dry sushi? That would be weird. Well, that's what I thought. No, no, full-size human towels. Just so like a giant sushi roll. Yeah, exactly. But the problem is no one ever has towels rolled up in their house. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. I don't, well, I think you would if you had those towels. I guess you would. Otherwise, what's the point? Exactly. Why even be alive? So you were coding and back in the day? Yeah. Can you just give a little taste of what that was like, that community back then? It was very small. There weren't many people who were kind of into the web at the turn of the millennium. What a horrible phrase. For people who had blogs then, they weren't really about anything because it was just about anything that was on the internet, which was mostly other things about the internet. So blogs that talked about blogs and making websites and stuff like that. So it was... At like an an interesting time, that kind of um, boom hadn't come to the UK in the same way. So there wasn't all this kind of money sloshing around for internet startups. You know, we had a couple of high-profile failures like Boo.com. 
I remember uh, Boo.com. Several of my friends worked there, so it was an exciting time. Mm. But the same kind of thing hadn't happened in the UK. And so it was a small community of enthusiasts. And you've been here for what now, 10 years? I've been years? in San Francisco for 12 years and Canada for a year and a half before that. Would you ever go back to the UK? It's hard to imagine that I would go back at this point. It's just, uh, it's so different. And I think the effort to create a Silicon Valley elsewhere will ultimately fail in the kind of medium term um, because most places are lacking the key ingredients that make Silicon Valley work, which is not just like investment capital and infrastructure, but uh, boundless optimism in the face of all evidence. And I think that's what makes startups work. Well, coming back from the UK after spending 13 years there, it is, that is stark. Yes, definitely. Is that something you had to learn as a Brit or get used to? Yeah, I think so. Because I'm very naturally, you know, like very pessimistic and sarcastic. And Californians are not pessimistic and sarcastic. Not that anybody here is really from here. It's more of like a, you know, an attitude you adopt, uh, you know, once you've been here a while. I think that if you're not, then you leave. Yeah, because it does seem, when I first moved to the UK, I was meant to cover tech. That was my first job. Mm-hmm. And the just the scale of ambition and the, the approach was just, the difference was so, it was huge. I mean, you could see it just in the way people talked about the scale of their ambition, what they wanted to do, etc. Yeah, I think that's because of a much reduced appetite for risk. So, you know, if you're not risking as much failure, then you're not going to shoot quite so high. And you know, you hear every startup in Silicon Valley, whether it's like some medical device or a machine to squeeze juice, is there to change the world. And everybody is trying to change the world. The idea of a British company saying they're trying to change the world is kind of ludicrous. You wouldn't be taken seriously. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And so today, you're this company. The Slack is used by how many people now? Five, five million? Uh, five million people every day. Microsoft thinks this is a really interesting area, and they're plunging in, as is Facebook. Are you worried? Not really worried. It has definitely been validating for us to have competitors enter the space. Because you did this great um, full-page ad when Microsoft kind uh, of The New York it. Times ad. Yeah, I think it's um, previous to... Which was basically like your kind of s- s- 
ironic golf clap for them for trying to kind of get into what you guys are doing. Yeah, it has been super helpful because prior to them entering the space, we were trying to convince companies to buy a whole new thing of which we were the only version of it. So it's like, you need this new tool. It's going to change the way you work. Nobody else is producing such a tool, but you know, trust us, it's worth buying. You know, When people start to make competing products, it, it's a clear signal that this is a space that is going to exist and this is a type of product you can buy. Um, so that, that's been good for us. Is the idea that you're going to be going public sometime soon? Uh, it's not on our radar for any time soon. I think what we're concentrating on for now is making a better product and being the best product we can be for our customers. Because one of the, the things you have to do, I, I believe, is get Slack to work in other languages or to, in larger groups. Is that right? Those are definitely two of our big focuses right now. So only 50% of um, Slack users are in North America. So the other half are scattered around the world, Europe and Asia mostly. And we have a lot of uh, strong Slack usage in Germany, Japan, France, where obviously people aren't primarily speaking English. But Slack is only available in English today. So one of the things we're working on this year is to, to bring Slack to market in other languages. And the other piece is support larger and larger organizations. So some of our largest customers like uh, IBM or NBC um, who have tens or hundreds of thousands of employees have very different needs to you know companies of 100 people. And could we talk about work culture because I think it's interesting because I think you guys are a bit of a di- an outlier in Silicon Valley in that you're not about the glorifying the all-nighter and having no work-life balance. Is that right? That's definitely true. I'm not sure how much of an outlier we are there, but we're... I, I In my the, experience, that makes you an outlier. I think the probably the default you know, a lot is of, that a lot people, of people don't really talk about it and that people who have an intense work culture are kind of proud about it. And talk yeah, about it a it's a bragging rights thing. Yeah, and I think that's... You know, that's the kind of thing you do when you're a five-person startup and you're, like, you know, clinging to life each week. But it's pretty different uh, if you want to build a sustainable company and sustainable culture at scale. And so in terms of running a company, how do you get people to go home? Because it does seem that there is this kind of macho-ish approach to, oh, yeah, I, you know, I slept under my desk last night. Yeah, I think that a lot of that comes from, like, leading by example. If your leadership team, if your exec team are in the office 24 hours a day, then, you know, then your managers are going to try and emulate that, and then your, you know, individual contributors are going to try and emulate that. So not spending insane hours in the office myself is probably a, you know, a good leading indicator. Halloween. Yeah. (laughs) It's so so (laughs) weird. Yeah, could you just explain what Halloween is and your first experience uh, with Halloween? So the first time, I think it was 2014, um, and on Halloween, I came into the office, and for the first, like, 10 minutes, I didn't notice anything weird. And then I noticed that everybody was dressed as me. So what's the, What's the uniform? Yeah, so I wear, like, shorts and a plaid shirt every day. Yeah, so I see. That's... You are... Uh, you are in dressed as Cal today. I, I am dressed as me. And so this is a pretty like universal uniform. I wear shorts 365 days a year, wear a plaid shirt 365 days a year, and glasses. And everybody in the office, and the office was like 30 people at the time, I think, was in shorts, a plaid shirt, and glasses. It's like, okay, this is really f- 
weird. And <laughs> and then we all took a big group photo, and it was ha oh, very funny. I don't know why everyone's dressed as me. That was strange. And then the next year, it happened again, but with a couple of hundred people. I was like, yeah, this is this is definitely weird. And like a lot of logistics went into dressing a couple of hundred. I people would say like that me. would that's a serious. There must have been a whole big Slack channel on. There were there was a lot of organizations. Somebody figured out how to buy you know shorts and shirts in bulk, and they ordered glasses that had like Halloween 2016 printed on the side. Oh wow, they really went for it. Yeah, I mean that was intense. And at that point, I was like, this is too much work. This will never happen again. And then last year, um, it happened again with uh, what 600 people across uh, five or six countries. I think probably the joke has played out now. Um, so you well really <laughs> we'll see <laughs> yeah. uh yeah and and last year my wife bought my son in dressed as me as well oh that wow that's fantastic it's uh i think the freakiest thing was go walking by meetings and there'd be 10 of me in a meeting it was impossible to tell where anybody was or who any who anybody was it's kind of like doing. a where's waldo come to life are you yeah, uh, where's like Wally, a nightmare uh, version where i see myself and is that 365 days a year wearing the same kind of general outfit? Is that like a Steve Jobs thing? That's your uniform? Is there, is there a not, reasoning behind it? or is I'm it not just... really sure what his motivation was, but mine is um, it's like easier. You know, don't have to make a lot of decisions. California is generally pretty warm. People who live in San Francisco don't think that, but compared to the UK, it is pretty much nice year round. It's never particularly cold here. And, uh, you know, shorts are pretty comfy. I've, um, over the last couple of Halloweens, I've convinced a few people to uh, kind of, you know, join my side and wear shorts every day. So, you know, getting converts. You guys are 800 people. You have all these big companies kind of barging in on your patch. What is keeping you up at night in terms of what happens next? I think really the idea that we need to continue to deliver on the promise of, of what we're trying to do, that... Um, Everything becomes difficult as you as you add more people and scale up. So you know, going from eight to eight hundred people has definitely brought a lot of organizational challenges. And if we're going to continue to grow, continue to grow and kind of customer base, make the product more complicated or more advanced, that um, just everything becomes more difficult. And so continuing on that kind of velocity is probably the thing that that keeps me up at night. Right. And what's up with the animals? There's animals oh, everywhere. You're looking at the clocks? Yeah. There's a giant clocks on the wall, digital clocks, and there's each number is a different animal. There's a frog, there's a monkey, there's... They are specifically zebra. emoji. And so there's a lot of emoji-themed things in the office. So all of our meeting rooms are emojis. We are in the yellow section of the office here, so all of the meeting rooms are like faces. So um, what, what room, room well, is Well, we're this? in the boardroom, which is the only room that doesn't have an emoji. Oh, that's boring. Yeah. But uh, next door on that side is banana, and on that side is honeypot. And then there's the uh, kind of blue section of the office, which is aquatic-themed, the green section, which is jungle, and the other section, which is like faces. So why? Is that... Is um, that, is that? I think kind of emoji is one of the kind of core things at slack not really about the product although obviously there's emoji in the product but like you know shows both uh like the playfulness at the heart of the product but also the way in which it's changed communication in some ways so one of the kind of interesting features we added a couple of years ago maybe was that you could react to a message using emoji and so this is that we'd seen the the star and now the heart on Twitter and the thumbs up on Facebook and the plus one on Google. 
a lot of messages that get sent, a lot of business communication requires like an acknowledgement. But like in the days of email, you'd have 30 people reply to somebody saying okay or yes. It's like that's a terrible way to have a, you know, 30 person reply or thread. And so we wanted to add something like that to the product so that you could agree or disagree with something. We couldn't figure out what the set of reactions that we wanted to add was. We figured, well, why not just let people react with any emoji? And then, you know, you could really build kind of a lot of powerful mechanisms on top of that for for voting or how you feel about things. And so I think emoji reactions are one of the most interesting features we added in that time um, that really compresses a certain kind of communication down to like this high bandwidth version. The average usage of Slack is something crazy, right? On a daily basis, you know, the average user. The average user is connected to Slack for 10 hours a day. That's like Microsoft Office style. It's the, you know, it's the one app that people have open all day alongside whatever it is they do. So alongside um, Photoshop or a code editor or Salesforce or Excel. So this is a bit of a trite question, but is email dead? No, email's not dead, and I don't think it's it's gonna die for a very long time. It's you know it's the cockroach of the internet. It's gonna be around forever, and definitely you know. Well, uh, perhaps it'll be marginalized, or it will no longer be, or it seems like it's already going out of being the primary way that people communicate. I think that's definitely a trend that's already started, and it definitely started in the kind of more consumer space with the rise of iMessage and WhatsApp and WeChat and Facebook Messenger that you don't expect to email with your friends or your partner or your family or maybe your family, you know, but use a different medium for each group of people that you talk to. And increasingly, email is being marginalized to spam, business to business contact where you're, you know, you're not talking to your colleagues, but somebody in another company, and, and automated systems. So a lot, you know, if you look on your inbox today, a lot of those emails are going to be like a Twitter notification or a Facebook notification or a LinkedIn request, you know, or if you're a developer, it's from GitHub or Travis or a notification from Salesforce. And so a lot of that kind of automated communication, email makes the most sense for a way to reach anybody with those kind of notifications, but it's kind of a terrible medium for those messages because there's no way to like aggregate them in a compact format. They're very kind of cumbersome to read a lot of it's not a stream you can dip in and out of which is what makes sense for some of those kind of modes of communication and is non-interactive so um, a lot of what we're trying to do with the slack platform is bring those kind of notifications into slack in a way that we can present them in a richer way and add interactivity as well i don't know how much you know about your customers but is there a generational break between email and slack or or these kind of different approaches in terms of using slack not so much but in terms of not using email that's definitely the case like the younger you are the less likely you are to have an email address that you check daily and so i think that email is already dying in that way it's just not clear what's going to be replacing it in a work setting so i think that over the next decade everybody will use something like slack in the workplace obviously our hope is that it is specifically slack they use in the workplace but i think that that's an inevitable change that's coming anyway is it weird to wake up and know that you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars? I guess it's more daunting that it's uh, that, that it's that kind of responsibility. No, responsibility? That, that millions of people are Like, which yacht on... am I going to buy today? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's knowing that millions of people are relying on you to be able to, to get their work done. You know, and in the kind of age of services rather than installed software... 
it has to continue working for people to be able to use it. But the idea that you're all of a sudden have more money than you could ever spend, is that something that actually ever... Because it's, you know, people have a fascination with this idea of, you know, of wealth and kind of making it. Is that something that occurs to you? It's not something I think about a lot. Really? Mostly just think about work. Right. You seem to think about shoes, too. Last time I was here, you had a pretty cool pair of shoes. These are also quite cool looking. Yeah, what was I wearing last time? They were like salmon colored, similar to that. Oh, do they have like a gold stripe down the middle? Yeah. Oh, yeah, those are real sweet. Um, these these aren't quite so cool today, but yeah, I do have a lot of shoes. Do you have any other you know things that you treat yourself to? Shoes and Lego. Lego. Yeah, Lego. Oh, the new uh, Saturn V rocket that just came out um, is real sweet. There's a Saturn V rocket in Lego. Yeah. How how big is it? Um, I think it's like about a meter tall. It's on back order right now, so. Do you have it? No, I have it ordered. Right. Yeah. And so you out. actually, do you have like a Lego room in your house or? I do. I, well, I'm <laughs> not like a room dedicated to Lego. <laughs> that would be. Not like a museum. Yeah, maybe one day. Uh, but I do have a fair amount of Lego. And that is all the time we have. I'd like to thank Cal for taking the time to talk today. It's a pretty unbelievable story. I look forward to seeing where it goes to from here. And I am hoping that it means lots more shoes and Lego for our friend Cal. So until next week, I bid you farewell. And please, if you like what you hear, do go to iTunes. Give a rating and review. It's a big help. And of course, you can read me every Sunday in the newspaper. Have a good week. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.